You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddity, the show where Emily and I do what it is we do, and somehow you guys just go with it. So um, <laughs> that's about the best description I think I have of the show. Um, we're glad to be back. Now, we're, we're still doing Skype. Um, and yeah, I'm actually. So the timing, yeah, the timing's a bit off on our, on our banter. And um, I'm trying to break in a little less often to save myself some editing and post. Oh, is that but, what it is? But my yeah. my notes aren't going as far. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm thinking every time every time I speak, I go, oh, that's one more cut I'm gonna have to do. Yeah, but the, but that means that that's ma- that many more notes I have to write. So, you know. hey, but that's why people are here for your notes. So you just write more. Well, I, I realized on the last episode we we didn't mention I'm actually in our sister's closet. <laughs> trying to do this so uh for those who've noticed that there's a background excuse me a background change it's because i've had to retreat into a closet yeah yeah, uh, ty's home today so the you know there's not much room in the camper so she had to find some place where she could get away from everyone (laughs) yeah yeah and for some reason he doesn't like the idea of just sitting like for hours doing nothing listening to me talk Uh, imagine that well, that's that's why we have a podcast, right? <laughs> exactly. So I don't drive him crazy. <laughs> Anyhow. All right. Well, that being said, we should get back to the podcast. Yeah. Um, we're, we're still Second Samuel in chapter 12. 12. Yeah. Right. So last week we talked about Nathan's parable about the lamb and the rich man and the poor man and, the, and David pronouncing basically his own sentence that this guy needs to die and he needs to pay fourfold. And then we had the, the switch over in verse eight, where, where Nathan, I think it was verse eight, verse seven, sorry, verse seven, where Nathan says, you're, you know, you're the man and thus saith the Lord. So now we're going into the formal prophetic announcement. This is, this is the words from God. These are not Nathan's words. These are the words that God has instructed the prophet to say. And, um, God has said, you know, you, you messed up is what, where he's, uh, he's starting with it. You know, he gave David everything. And because he gave David everything, David did not have the right to take. This is the difference between the king of Israel and the king of other nations. And this is going to get really fascinating as we move forward, because we have to remember the kings of other nations. These are the watchers. These are the Nephilim. These tie us right back to Genesis 6 where the sons of God looked on the daughters of man and they took wives as they chose. And so we're going to talk about some really great tie-ins there. So, uh, but we'll get there. So picking up in verse nine, it says, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You took his wife to be your wife and you killed him with the sword of the Ammonite. So uh, God's listing off David's offenses. Okay. He killed Uriah the Hittite. This is bad. Making note that Uriah is a Hittite. Uh, and despite the fact that Uriah is a foreigner, God still holds David accountable for his death. Why? Because Uriah had left behind his homeland 
and joined with the people of God. And he was loyal to God's king and God's people. And his wife was even actively keeping the Torah. So despite the fact he wasn't born in Israel, he was not an Israelite by birth, he is still being noticed by God, which is a huge point whenever we talk about uh, the Old Testament where so many people say, oh, well, what about people who weren't Israelites? You know, God didn't love them. Well, here's another example. Absolutely. God loves them. And God took note when wrong was done to them. So, so the, here's a question for you. Okay. Um, it has really nothing to do with what we're talking about, <laughs> but I'm going to put it out there because you, you mentioned Uriah is referred to often, you know, basically all the time as Uriah the Hittite. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that his wife's Torah observant Jewish woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question is, what's Uriah doing? Is he fully converted in observing the law or is he following the guidelines uh, of a sojourner? Uh, of a sojourner. At the very I'm least, he... curious about that. Yeah, <laughs> at the very least, he is following the guidelines of a sojourner. And uh, matter of fact, if you remember when we talked about that before, um, you're supposed to love your brother like you love the sojourner. That The, the idea that um, the sojourner actually has a higher status than even the brother as far as how they're supposed to be treated. And so uh, we don't have a specific answer whether or not Uriah was a sojourner, or if he was a full-on convert, uh, it would be interesting to know. Uh, but at the very least, he he is having to follow those guidelines if he's going to be honored. And you would think that if one of David's mighty men would allow his daughter, because remember Bathsheba's daughter, uh, Bathsheba's Bathsheba's father was one of David, yeah, mighty men, that he uh, would expect her to marry someone who uh, who he considered proper. And so he evidently sure. had a high regard for Uriah in order to let his daughter uh, be married off. And particularly if she's a beautiful woman, because uh, beautiful daughters commanded high ranking husbands. And so a lot, this is the reason why women were often used to help the family gain prestige. And we also saw that back in Judges when the um, man from Bethlehem married off his daughter to the Levite because he wanted to have a Levite in the family, you know, you get somebody belonging to the priesthood. This puts him in the right social circles. And it's mm-hmm. all through using the daughter as a political pawn. And so, um, so the short answer to your question is we have no idea. <laughs> so. yeah. Well, I, I figured that was probably the answer and it was really more of just curiosity. I don't think it really helps or hurts the story either way. Now, I just, I, I, this, for me, it's really interesting that we see God on this list saying the fact you killed off the Hittite. And with the implication, the Hittite who was loyal to you, this, this makes me mm. mad. Don't, you don't treat people like that. And so, um, you know, God's watching out for, uh, for everyone. And Uriah, because of the choice he made to step away from his background, he's now under God's uh, protection. And so, you know, even though he's a Hittite, this is what it boils down to. Even though he was a Hittite, we should expect to see him in heaven. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so uh, that, that's a, a pretty significant detail uh, whenever we're talking about, you know, criticism against the Bible. The, the second offense that God lists is to take Bathsheba to be his wife. Now, this could be referring to two things. It, the, the word here, take, um, only occurs in the first instance that David takes Bathsheba. So is, it could refer to the fact that this is the, the rape. This is the, the scene where David sends for her. 
to be his wife. This could refer to the legal marriage, which did happen. But the uh, the legal marriage, when that happens, he gathers her in. He he doesn't take her. There, there's a different connotation with the language there. So it could be to take to be his wife or to take to do wifely things with. Um, I kind of think the ambiguity of the language actually encompasses both. And so because we do have that very pointed taking and then we have the, the um, legal status of wife referred to. And mm-hmm. if you remember um, back to Genesis 34, the critique of um, Simon and Levy, whenever they defended their sister um, Dina from the Prince of Shechem. And, um, you know, even though he wanted to marry the sister after the rape, it wasn't allowed because they thought it was so heinous. And so there's an idea possibly carrying through that God said, you know, you did this horrible thing. Now taking her as a wife is the wrong thing to do. And the, the question really becomes, do you think Simon and Levy did the right thing in preventing this marriage? Or if they were, did the wrong, uh, or they did the right thing in, in saying, no, you don't get to take our sister and then act like everything's okay. And the Torah, right. the Torah is never really clear on who, whose side it comes down on. It just kind of presents the story and we aren't given any background commentary. And, um, that, that's been a question that is often debated. And we're actually going to see that the story of Dina comes up several times uh, in the story of David after this. So uh, I, I look forward to getting into that because so often the story of Dina itself is overlooked and therefore we don't see how it plays into future references. Now, the other thing that God gets mad is David uses the Ammonites to kill Uriah. Uh, it, you know, it, it lacks integrity. You, David didn't even have the courage to to stand on a battlefield and say, hey, let's fight for the woman we love. Let, let's let's see who comes out the victor and whoever wins gets to have her. You know, as heinous as that idea uh, may sound to women today uh, and hopefully to some men today that a woman would be fought over like property. There is some honor in at least meeting your opponent on the field and not hiding behind such, you know, these manipulations. Um, and, and hiding even behind enemies well exactly exactly and and specifically such evil enemies and we can we have to remember too when the men when who killed ishbosheth saul's son uh went in and attacked him in his house while he was asleep and used you know these underhanded tactics to to kill their enemy david got mad and had them killed and you know the thing is the reason why this is so so bad in this particular instance is the Ammonites are an enemy of God, not just David. And so now they've got reason to gloat. Hey, look, one of David's mighty men, one of his most you know uh, celebrated warriors, we killed him. So where's the God of Israel now? Where where's his defense over his people? And so anytime you give the enemy an occasion to gloat over God's failure, then you're in the wrong. And that's something that's also very central to Old Testament theology. And so, and which actually puts our own sins in a really unique perspective that when we fail as Christians to, to live up to the standard we've been called to, are we giving the enemy opportunity to gloat over God's failure? So mm-hmm. it should be rather convicting for, for us. Um, But verse 10, now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah to be your wife. Now, God is saying, 
the violence that's getting ready to happen. And we're, I mean, oh, we're getting ready to get into the major violence in David's own house. It's not because of what you did to Uriah. It's because of what you did to Bathsheba. The, the things that are getting ready to unfold are going to, to happen specifically because of what you did against this woman. Now, what's interesting about this is what unfolds is actually what allows Bathsheba's son to rise up and take this throne instead of any of the other sons. And so Bathsheba actually winds up being honored above all of, other, all of David's other wives because of what's getting ready to happen at God's decree. And so it really, it becomes a very fascinating, um, connected, multi-layered you know, story that where you see David really does become the one who caused all of this, uh, this horror. Yeah, and, and yeah, and you, and you, and this is one of these stories that I really wish a legitimate production studio would make a movie about because, I mean, the, it, it, any Christian filmmaker is probably not even going to want to try to touch <laughs> any of this subject matter. Right. For one. Right. And. And two, and the other, I just, I wish someone would, would grab it and run with it and make, but I, I don't think it's the, the problem is it's the kind of story that Hollywood would love to produce, mm-hmm. but I feel like anyone who has the skills and would be interested in producing this kind of story also wouldn't want to give the Bible any kind of credit as an interesting story. Yeah. And that's what's frustrating to me about it. Yeah, and well, and then you've got the added um, pressure of this is automatically an R rating. Just it, oh yeah, it's right there. And then all the Christians, oh, we don't watch R rated movies because for some reason that's the criteria for what's an acceptable story or not. Um, that does make it doesn't make any sense. Um, the Bible is R rated. Uh, we we need to be evaluating what we're watching and what we're taking in not by a rating system that the world has ascribed to it. It's mm. funny that we submit to this rating system that the world has imposed when God is very clear that sometimes very graphic and horrible things happen. Now, do we need to constantly be bombarding our eyes and mind with that? Absolutely not. We need to be using wisdom and discernment. But there's some stories, uh, even true stories and documentaries that are out there that are so, I mean, Schindler's List. Let's let's talk about that one. That's one everybody knows. Mm-hmm. I Oh my gosh, if you can watch that and not be shaken to the core of your being, you, you're heartless. Um, it, and yet to not display how horrible it was, to, to not reveal how shocking it was, would you be a disservice to the people who lived through it. Mm-hmm. And so there is a time and place for these, these very bold revelations and very brazen revelations of evil and what it looks like so that we don't become complacent and think, oh, well, that just, you know, that happened in history, that happened over there, to, to realize this is happening to real people. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. whenever we see that and we can't separate the, the story into something other, where it has to become something that, that lives within ourselves, um, you know, that, that troubles us. And that's the reason why we put that R rating on there. And so when we, we talk about troubling stories and disturbing stories, horrifying stories, we, we aren't talking about something that's necessarily evil in and of itself. We're talking about something that reveals evil so we can deal with it. 
And that's the reason right. why the Bible includes such graphic stories of violence. So didn't intend to go down that rabbit trail. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> so. Well, I, I, my thought was just it would be really good to put this together as a series so people would actually watch it mm -hmm. and, and and get a feel for the how the whole story comes together because we have become a very visual, uh, well, we've always been very uh, a very visually oriented society in the way we learn and, and process stories. So yeah, yeah, and you know, but yeah, I'm with you. It, it would need to be done by somebody who who wouldn't shy away. And could hold up the, the, the light to all of it and still give credibility to the Bible for being this amazing story. So, um, anyway, I'm trying to remember what it was. Um, but, yeah, okay, so David, you know, verse 10, when we were talking about the, the sword shall not depart from um, his house. This connects us right back to what David said to Joab. And, you know, when he told Joab, he says, yeah, well, okay, people die. You know, swords kill people. This is, this is what happens in battle. No big deal. And now we're going to see how David feels when that sword is released in his own house. And, mm -hmm. you know, he, he, again, spoke his own punishment. He, he spoke his own consequences. And we need to remember, too, that we shouldn't be surprised that God says, hey, these consequences, these horrible consequences, are because of what you did to this woman. Because if you remember back when we talked about this in Genesis, God is always intervening on behalf of the abused woman. And I think that is just so amazing when we see it in scripture, how God intervenes. He, he supernaturally intervenes on behalf of the woman. And if he doesn't do that, then the consequences for women being abused in Israel are horrifying. We saw right. that back in Judges when almost you know, the entire tribe of Benjamin was wiped out because one woman was raped, murdered, and had her body cut up. And God says, destroy yourself. Y'all guys have made me so sick. Have at it. And so we can look at you know, Genesis um, when, when Abraham pimped Sarah out to Pharaoh and God says, first plague on Egypt right there. It was on behalf of the nation. It was on behalf of one woman. That's the first plague in Egypt. Whenever um, Hagar gets cast out, and you know this is Sarah who who makes Hagar run away because Sarah's being a jerk to Hagar, and you know the first angel appears to a woman. I'm not going to replay all the first. We've covered that before, but what we have to remember is when God sees women being abused, it's never good for the nation. Matter of fact, the health of the nation really is measured. By how it's treating its women. So um, when we look at David's story, the other thing that should really be disturbing for us in this is that David's whole life and all the events that have led him to being king were set in motion by a woman, specifically mm -hmm. Hannah. And so now God is like, you know, everything you wanted Everything you said was okay to exist, that should exist by any standard of right and wrong, it's going to happen in your home. And so the sword's going to be released. You're going to pay four times for what you did. And it's all going to be on account of um, what you did to this woman. So, verse 11 And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. 
for for you did it secretly, and that I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. So God promises David, what you try to cover up, what you try to hide, I'm I'm going to make it public. And you are not going to be able to deny that these kinds of horrors exist in Israel. And why do they exist in Israel? Well, the same reason why death exists in the earth, because one man decided, hey, I'm going to do what I want to do. And, um, you know, this, this, these verses are brutal. And they're brutal to David. They're, they're brutal to us to read them. And it, it's hard to see a kind, loving God in these verses. Mm-hmm. Because it, it doesn't sound even like David's, like the consequences are being enacted against David at this point. It sounds like it's going to be enacted against his wives. And to understand why this is a disciplinary act to David and not just, you know, God being cruel to these women, we, we have to look at what it means within the context of the, of the book. And we've already seen that within the context of this book, for a man to sleep with another man's wife was basically to say, I can take your place or I have taken your place in every other aspect. If I can invade this most intimate level of your world, then don't think I haven't already invaded every, every other aspect of your life. And so um, God is basically saying to David here, I'm going to give your throne to someone else. Not just your wife's. I'm giving your throne to someone else. And, you know, David, God had already told David, I've given you Saul's wives. I've given you Saul's women's. Uh, women's. How do you like that one? Uh, I've given you <laughs> Saul's women. And so now I can give you, give your women to someone else. Ishbosheth got so mad at Abner. Why? Because Abner took one of Saul's concubines and Ishbosheth saw it as a threat. Said that saw it as Abner saying, I want to be the king of Israel. And so God is saying, I'm using the language and the symbols of your day, which are women, to to communicate this message to you. This is how far you've fallen, that I'm going to take this away from you. So and and David would have understood this because if you notice, look at who God's giving the, the wives to. He's giving them to a neighbor. When was the last time did God say he was going to give something to a neighbor? Well, that was back in 1 Samuel 28, 17. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, 1 Samuel 28, 17 with the witch of Endor. This is when mm-hmm. you know Samuel comes up and Samuel tells Saul, God's given the kingdom to the neighbor who's better than you, who is David. In 1 Samuel 15, 28, when Saul had kept King Agag of the Amalekites alive and God denounces Samuel at that point, I'm giving the throne to a neighbor who is better than you. And so David knows what this means to have his stuff given to a neighbor. God's basically saying, hey, what I did to Saul, I can do to you. As a matter of fact, you deserve for me to do this to you. And one of the hard truths of, of this world, and this is something that a lot of people have a difficulty with. There's been libraries written about this issue. Um, we live in a fallen world. And in this fallen world, violence begets violence. And so while God's faithful to forgive the repentant, he, 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 doesn't, he doesn't remove the consequences from the action. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who see you know, God's mercy and grace. The consequences are still there. We see mm-hmm. this, and I've used this example before. You get drunk, you go get, get in a car, you drive out, and you, you wreck into a family of five, and you kill them all. 
You ask for God's forgiveness. Will he forgive? Absolutely. Guess who's still dead? And so the consequences don't disappear just because we're repentant. And so with David, the, the problem is he's the most important person in Israel. He has the most influence. He has the most prestige. He, his actions have consequences that are going to ripple throughout the community and out the kingdom because the more important you are, the greater the consequence of your action. And so now everything that happens to David is going to have a ripple effect and it's going to harm everyone around him. You know, David sent, he, he's, he's raped Bathsheba, he's murdered Uriah. And just like the rape of the concubine in the city of Gibeah, the, the woman back in Judges, that the horrible story, you know, that resulted in mass chaos. It re- resulted in more rapes. It resulted in a civil war that almost destroyed the country. Now, David's actions are going to unleash the same wave, type of wave of violence in Israel. Thankfully, it's not going to be as severe even as that. And if, believe it or not, things are getting better. But it's a long progression of slow incremental changes within the community, within the people that's allowing it to get better. And so even while it's still horrifying to us that these are going to be the consequences, this is so much better than what happened in Judges. And the reason why we can look back and say, hey, that's so awful, is because of what we've learned from stories like this and said, we don't want to repeat that in our own lives. And so um, the, the, the consequences, like I said, they're going to hit the whole nation. And the, and the reason for this, too, is in part is because chesed, that compassion, the mercy and compassion that, that's rightly enacted, is one of the highest values of the Israelite community. And I think we forget that. We, we get so caught up in, oh, they had all these laws and these, you can't do this and you can't do that. And the idea of compassion being um, a high standard for an Israelite and the proper standard for an Israelite to uh, um, aspire to uh, gets lost in all of that. Now, if the, the second part of Nathan's pronouncement is planned, then basically Nathan hasn't come to say, hey, um, God's not happy with you. You need to straighten it up or, you know, kind of give him some kind of verbal chastisement. He, he's actually here to say, you're out. You were you no longer going to be king of Israel because you can't be. You cannot live this way. You cannot act this way and represent God. And now some people are going to argue that because of chapter seven, where God does form this eternal covenant with David, that there's no way God could be rejecting him as king. But again, we got to look at the whole context of the book. If we go back to first Samuel 20, first uh, Samuel two, verse 27 through 36, God sends a prophet to Eli and he tells Eli, Hey, I chose you in your house back in the days of Egypt to minister in front of me forever, basically, is, is the, the language that we're talking about here. And when we go back and read it in Egypt, Eli's house was supposed to be the, the priest over the, the temple, over the Ark of the Covenant, the ones who served most closely to God. But because Eli's sons weren't honoring God and they were dishonoring the sacrifice, God says, no, I'm not going to tolerate that. And when Eli did nothing in response to the prophet's warning, then God comes back with uh, through Samuel in 1 Samuel 3, and he reaffirms, hey, I've rejected you. And so God tells uh, Samuel, 
that he's fulfilling the previous word to, to Eli because Eli did nothing. And so we also have 1 Samuel 13, when Saul makes the unlawful uh, sacrifice. Samuel tells Saul that because he has not done what God has commanded, that he will, um, that's when the, the um, kingdom will be given to his neighbor. And again, in 1 Samuel 15, when he keeps the best uh, animals alive with the um, King Agag. Mm-hmm. It's at that point in Saul's life that David's anointed. But throughout the book of Samuel, what we find is God's decrees are issued through the prophet as first being immutable, uh, as being, um, they're, they're not going to be changed, they're not going to be um, modified, that they're, they're presented as final. But then there's always a pause between this first declaration that seems like it is so final, and then there's this reaffirmation that says, hey, you had a chance to do something, you didn't do it, and you used up your last chance. So if we read chapter 7 carefully, God promises not to take the kingdom from David's son, who shall be king. He, he doesn't promise not to take mm-hmm. it from David. And so um, God's decrees in, in Samuel, while they lack the typical if-then formula, which is what we find in, you know, read uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and those guys, a lot of times we find if you do this and then if you do that, we also see it in Deuteronomy. Um, we don't find that in Samuel. We just find these pronouncements, but the if-then is implied. And notice um, in verse 13, David said to, to Nathan, I have sinned against the, war, the Lord. The, um, that's also two words there. It, 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 it's not a, a huge, you know, I have sinned. It, it becomes very interesting um, correspondence with Bathsheba's two words and um, Nathan's two words. And so Nathan says to David, the Lord also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nathan never said David would die. Not in his original pronouncement. However, under the dictates of the Torah, death was the only fitting punishment for David. He was mm-hmm. an adulterer and a murderer. doesn't matter whether we're talking rape or not at this point. We're talking adultery and murder alone were enough to get you killed. Right. So the only way that David doesn't deserve to die is if we factor in another passage, also from Exodus, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. So Bergen sees this as a picture uh, of Israel as a nation, a nation that's repeatedly sinned, and, and they've sinned directly against God, and God never abandons them. And so I mean, they're, they're a nation who we know they've turned to idols. That's what Judges was all about. And they experience God's discipline, and they are forgiven when they turn back to him. And so this idea that even though God had promised, hey, you, if you don't obey me, and you can go back and look in Deuteronomy and read the promises there, if you aren't going to obey me, I'm going to wipe you out. Mm-hmm. And of course, we know that God never fully wipes out the nation of Israel. Why? Because even within this promise of discipline and punishment and consequences, there's still that element of grace and mercy that's always present. And so we see this enacted over and over again. Um, Bergen uh, cited Deuteronomy 32, 26 through 27. It's amazing. Deuteronomy has more verses than eight and nine. But anyway, he says, I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from 
human memory, had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did this at all. So basically, what God's saying there, I'm going to be merciful. I am going to forgive. I am going to save. I am going to redeem my people, not because they deserve it. They did everything wrong. They deserve to be cut to pieces, wiped from memory. They don't even deserve to, to be remembered at all. But because I'm God and I don't want anyone to misunderstand the fact that I did this, then I'm going to, I'm going to preserve and protect. And so David's life is spared because God fulfills, you know, he, he's faithful to, to forgive the truly repentant. And now to depose him would cast doubt on whether or not God had truly chosen him. I mean, there was already some doubt anyway, because, you know, he's Jesse's youngest son and they already had a king. Uh, and the idea that God would reject Saul would have been unthinkable to some people. God redeems the story of David. And he actually, David's story becomes the example of what true repentance looks like. It becomes the, the pattern that if you want to repent, that in Judaism you're supposed to study, and uh, particularly Psalm 51, and we're going to talk about that. But the idea that if David can repent, and David can ask for mercy, and God will be faithful, even in such a horrible, horrible situation, one of the worst situations I think any of us could ever imagine, then there's hope. There's hope for all of us. Because most of us, even though we've done some horrible things, we haven't raped someone and we haven't murdered someone, hopefully. And so the fact that God can forgive, you know, when we talk about the worst of the worst, even today, when we talk about the worst of the worst people, they're rapists and murderers. This is, the, this is the language we use in, in our modern parlance because we can't think of anything worse than that. I mean, we can, but that's the first thing that comes out because you go further than that. Now we're talking, you know, things we don't even want to think about. But this, that's the byword for, for the ultimate evil in our English um, language. So, um, well, David is spared the eternal condemnation and he, he is allowed to live um, the consequences, man, they're, they're awful. And, and there's that tension between God's grace and mercy and the enactment of the, of the consequences because the first, very first consequence is the death of his infant, infant son. Mm -hmm. So verse 14, um, Nathan's still speaking. He says, nevertheless, by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord and the child who is born to you shall die. Verse 15, and then Nathan went to his house. Nathan didn't even want to stick around to witness what was going on. Um, the, the utterly scorned uh, is different in the, the Septuagint and the, and the Masoretic, and even the Dead Sea Scrolls has a, has a different variation. Uh, the Masoretic says David insulted the enemies of the Lord. And so this is probably a scribal nicety that the scribes didn't want to say David had actually insulted God. So they add in the enemies, kind of soften the blow a little bit. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls says that David insulted the word of the Lord, but this is more likely a later addition to the text. Um, what we do know for sure is that this word of insult or uh, scorn connects us right back to Hophni and Phinehas and the abuse of the sacrifice that led, that led to their rejection as a priest, which is why the prophet had to come to Eli and had to say, hey, I've rejected your house. 
scorning God's word in the Old Testament leads to death. And somebody is going to die when, when God's word is scorned. And sometimes it's the person who scorned God's word. And sometimes it's the innocent people around him. And then this is one reason why we have to be so careful with what with how we approach God's word because we don't want the innocent to be hurt. And we're going to talk some more about um, all the implications of that. I mean, this was just, this part was just so brutal to even try to put together. Um, If we're going to be strictly utilitarian about the death of David's child, uh, we've got to recognize that it serves two purposes. One, it reveals to the nation the true nature of David's sin. This is confirmation that what the prophet had accused David of actually had happened. And it wasn't just somebody trying to degrade and humiliate a king. He was speaking the truth. This is a horrible sign of confirmation, but it it is confirmation. It also um, removes any doubt that the child born to Bathsheba or that who would eventually a child born from her would become a king. There's no doubt now that David's the father, because if this child would have lived, there, there would have always been rumors. There always would have been doubt. Was the king of Israel really a Jew or was he a Hittite? Mm-hmm. And you know, that just couldn't happen for so many reasons. And so, um, like I said, that's a, that's a very utilitarian view. And I recognize that. And I, I want to, I wanted to deal with that, and let's just get those out of the way. Um, yeah, because there's a whole lot to go through on this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there really is. So, like I said, sin always results in death. Scorning the word of God results in death. And um, David's life is is spared, but the, the life that's going to be taken is the child. Um, I decided I didn't really trust myself to go off on this, so I, I'm, I'm going to stick pretty with, close to what Samara says here. And he explains that even though the ESV has it put away, the word here is um, more the idea to pass. The sin is going to pass over. So God's caused the sin to pass over David and onto the son. Now, as people who love and care for children, this is a hard thing you know, we, to wrap our minds around the idea that it's even okay for God to do this. Uh, we, we see it as a tragedy. And and I think rightfully so. I'm I'm not dismissing. Yeah, that. as well we should. Yeah. Yeah, but I think um, we can take some of the sting out of it if we see this from an eternal perspective. So if we believe that death isn't just the end, but we think that it's a new beginning and the child is now in the presence of God, now it 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 doesn't make it all right. But it makes it a little better. Isaiah 57 1 says, The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in uprightness. So, this idea that death is not something terrible. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, if we look at this is all we have right here and now, then it, it becomes very easy to think that death is. The final word. Now, we as Christians, we don't believe that. Now, Isaiah 57 is uh, referring to the death of the righteous and, and the loss to the community. And, you know, they're recognizing that this person who is taken, and as far as Isaiah is talking about, is um, someone who cannot be appreciated by the community. 
but and there, there's a certain amount of peace and comfort in those words for people to recognize that when the righteous are taken, it, it is there's a purpose behind it, and it's to it's to spare them pain. It's to keep them from going through the evils that they would be subjected to if they remained on this earth. And so, with a child, now we have some very interesting implications with that. And so, um, we have to remember David's whole household, all of it, is getting ready to be plunged into chaos and violence and horrible, horrible things are going to happen to David's children. And so, it's very possible. And, and I, I really, I think I'm right on this, that for this child to die in this moment was actually a, an act of mercy for so many reasons. Not only did he avoid all of the brothers and trying to kill each other, which he would have been a target for, he also avoided growing up with the scandal of, oh, you're the child of a Hittite. You, you're, you're the bastard son of our enemy, not a true member of the family. And so I do think that there is this, this level of grace that came with death. And that, that's really hard, like I said, for a lot of Christians to, to, or a lot of anyone to think of the death of a child being a, a horrible event. So um, I, I'm not done, but I want to continue with the passage. We're going to, we're going to return more to um, how this actually serves many purposes this is not a senseless death there there's purpose and reason behind it and more than just those than those i, I pointed out so verse 15b and david uh, i'm sorry and the lord afflicted the child that uriah's life bore to david and he became sick notice she's still uriah's wife in this verse um and there are like i said there are many attempts um in people dealing with this verse because it is so hard they want to let god off the hook uh, people will claim that God did not afflict the child, that he allowed it to happen. Uh, obviously, that's against what the text says. Very plainly, very clearly, God did this. And when we try to find ways to let God off the hook, we usually wind up creating more problems for ourselves than we solve. And so, you know, if we're willing to rewrite this verse so that we, as, even as Christians, can be more comfortable with it, then we have to ask the question, well, why stop there? Right. You know, I, I can come up with a million more verses to, to uh, rewrite, make me feel better. So verse 16, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elder of his, elders of his home stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. So David's, he, he's interceding for the child. And it really does mirror 1 Samuel 28, which is really an interesting mirror here. Because the prophet in you know, 1 Samuel 28, that's when Saul goes to the witch of Endor. And mm. Saul's, Saul's seeking to talk to the dead. And Saul wants to, to find comfort for himself. So um, we, we've got so many parallels. So first of all, we, we've got a, a prophet who decrees that death is coming. So in 1 Samuel, it's Samuel is declaring to Saul, hey, someone's going to die. In this passage here, Nathan is telling David, someone's going to die. The king lays on the ground or falls to the ground and he won't eat. He's there for an extended period of time. The servants attempt to get him up. They attempt to get him to eat. Now, in Saul's story, Saul gives in. David absolutely refuses. He persists with his fast. 
Saul actually takes the seat on the witch's bed, on the medium's bed. David mm. remains on the ground. And the two kings pre present this very vivid contrast of one man who can be swayed so easily, even you know, when his own life is at stake. He, he can be, you know, influenced by those around him. David won't be moved. And so Saul, you know, we never have any record of him praying for anyone. And so David here, he's on the ground praying for the life of his child. And so two very different approaches uh, to what's going on. And the idea that David would, would pray for this child. Saul, okay, so when, when Saul prays, he's praying because he doesn't want to die and he doesn't want to lose the throne. This is, this is what he's wanting. David is praying because he doesn't want someone else to die and he doesn't care that this child living would pose a huge threat to his throne. And so he's actually praying for the life of someone who's going to cause complications for the kingdom, not preserve it. And so this is, I mean, the compassion now for that David is feeling is being applied rightly. It's being applied for someone who's innocent. Saul only had compassion for himself. And so this, it becomes really, it's, it's great. So there's another, we're going to continue forward because I have something else that's going to add to that picture. But verse okay. eight. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. Uh, there's some debate um, in the text uh, about the text about how old the child is explicitly. We're never told. Uh, a lot of it's going to hinge on when did Nathan deliver the decree? Was it before the child was born? Was it after the child was born? Now, the Jewish tradition is that he was born and that he was seven days old when he died. So Nathan would have delivered the cre decree either the day of his birth or, or shortly before. Um, mm. it, it's not impossible. There, it, the text doesn't give us anything that any of the suggestions and the solutions actually um, would contradict. Now, if the child is seven, years, seven days old, this actually compounds the problem. Because David's sorrow is not just that he's losing his son. This is a son who dies before he's circumcised. And so he's not officially a member of the Israelite community because he doesn't bear the mark of the covenant relationship between Israel and God as a male. And um, if the child is only seven days old, um, we don't know if it's still practice and died before he was circumcised, then he wouldn't have even had a, a, a he wouldn't have had a name. Now what what's interesting is today, and this is what I meant when I again, one of these things I get really excited about. Um today, if a child dies before they're circumcised, even if there's a miscarriage and the child is formed fully enough, uh, a circumcision is still performed before the child is buried. Uh so that it can be considered part of the, the covenant community. And that's the part we don't know if this was practiced even back in David's day. So that would be interesting to know that. Um, and the purpose in the circumcision today is that when the Messiah, of course, you know, the, the, a lot of the Jews are still waiting for the Messiah to return. 
when he returns, then the child will be remembered and, and be identified as a part of the covenant community and can be, be returned to their mother. Um, within the text, David's child's never named. So again, there's that, that debate on whether he was circumcised. Um, and so the idea that he is with, um, I'm, I'm trying to, to get, get all my thoughts together. Sorry. This is just, when I research this, there's just layer and layer and layer upon how to deal with death properly, particularly the, the, the death of a child. And what I found to be so interesting is most of, um, I don't want to say that, that might be wrong. There were a lot of guides on specifically how to deal with grief and death that were so particular and so specific that I don't often see within the Christian community. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I have a degree in, in family studies and gerontology. I, I spend a lot of time studying the process of death and what happens at the end part of life. And so um, one of the big things in our, in our, our culture, and, and I, I'm speaking as Protestant Americans all over the, the world, we don't handle death well. We, we have a really hard time with it. And there, there seems to be very few people to actually walk us through step by step. This is the phone call you need to make. This is the, the, the plan you need to have in place. This mm -hmm. is, and, and yet what I was finding within these Jewish communities is documents from, from hospitals where they said, okay, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And this is how we're going to handle it. And this is who needs to be at the cemetery. Who, this is who doesn't need to be at the cemetery. And I thought that was beautiful. Because it really does speak to the fact that death is, is seen as a crossover point. It, it's not seen as final. And I, you would think that we as, as Christians would have a very similar view that, that death is it, it's a stepping stone into to something new. It's not the end of everything. And so it just, I don't know, it was encouraging me to me that, that whenever people take the Torah, God's word in the Old Testament seriously, they still came to this conclusion that death is not something that's so horrible that you can't talk about it. Mm -hmm. And it, it was something that they could look at very boldly. And, and we still see that happening today. And that speaks to the power of the Torah to actually be very life-changing. And we don't study Torah as Christians. Oh yeah, we read the, the pretty little um, stories and the things that make good flannel graphs but we don't actually study the Torah to see how it points to these revelations of life and death. That's an aside. So um, the possibility that the child was older um, is still open within the text because David could have just been grieving for seven days. Again, we talked about that just 30, 37, 34, when Jacob was grieving for the death of Joseph, he grieved for seven days. So, However old the, the child is, it, it really um, doesn't matter. Uh, Job actually grieves his children for seven days. That's in Job 2.13. And the writer here in Samuel, I mean, man, the guy's brutal. Uh, five times, he managed to get, get it in there. Five times, the child is dead. He's dead. He's dead. And so you, you need to know. He hammers it home. This is the consequence. Um, there's no reprieve. God has said this is what's going to happen, and this is exactly what, how things are going to um, be fulfilled. Now, the servants, mm -hmm. 
you know, they're worried that David is going to do himself some harm. Literally, um, something evil is how the Hebrew reads, uh, that he would kill himself in his grief is what they're saying. But we don't talk about that. I mean, there's still some taboos that carry through all generations. And the idea that somebody would kill themselves was still unthinkable even back then. So uh, verse 19, but when David saw the servants were whispering together, he understood the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said he's dead. Okay, so three times there in that verse, you get it, dead, dead, dead. Um, the writer is not going to let you escape this. So upon hearing the news, and this is in verse 20, he arises from the earth, he washes and anoints himself, he changes clothes, he goes to the house of the Lord, he doesn't go home, he goes home, he goes to God, he worships, and he goes down to his house and then asks for food. So what's so interesting about this, David is flipping the proper protocol around death you don't grieve for the living you grieve for the dead and so when david says no i'm going to grieve while he's alive i i'm i'm not going to grieve after he he's dead after he's dead and so the idea that he would fast and pray before the death and not after the death is would have stunned the servants there's a reason why they're shocked by this so verse yeah yeah so verse 21 well i want to kind of i'm fighting to get stuff in here uh the servant said to him what is this thing you have done you fasted and wept for the child while he is alive but when the child died you arose and ate food so now the 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 like i said servants are appalled this is borderline scandalous um this is less of a question and more of an accusation which we see in genesis 3 remember when god confronts uh eve and says what is this thing that you have done the same question mm-hmm. so verse 22 He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for, I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me and the child may live. So um, to many people, the idea that God could change his mind, you know, pretty much sacrilege, forget it. God's not going to do it. Um, David sees it as a completely viable uh, option. The idea that he could influence God, the idea that he get God to change what he had decreed. David thinks it's possible and it's with valid reason. Go back to Exodus uh, 32, 14, after the golden calf incident, uh, God tells Moses, I'm going to wipe all of Israel out. I'm going to start again. Just you, Moses, me and you, we got this. We don't need all those other people. But it says God relented. God changed his mind. And so he decided to do something different. David had witnessed this in his own life when God changed his mind about Saul. Amos 7, 3 and 7, 6, God prepares to send plagues on israel but amos prays and the lord relented god changed his mind it's funny to me the sb always use uses relented they avoid the change the mind um synonym there um, right jonah 4 2 says he knows uh, that god will relent concerning disaster jeremiah 26 3 perhaps they will listen and turn from their evil ways that i can relent from this disaster the idea that sincere repentance and prayer could change god's mind is woven throughout the Hebrew Bible. It, the idea that we as human beings can actually get God to respond to us and actually change the future because we came to him and we poured out our hearts and we repented of our sins is central to the Bible. And this is the mm-hmm. reason why I can't get behind complete and total predeterminate uh, ideas of God where God controls every little atom and neutron and whatever. 
God said, and that it's all fully scripted and set in stone. Yes, yes. Otherwise, why bother? I mean, I can decide to to sit in the chair all day to get tomorrow, and everything that will be will be. I I have no active part. And David's saying, I have the ability to influence God, and I need to do my part. And you know, maybe God won't change his mind on this, but there's a chance. Because here's the thing about being sovereign: you have the right to change your mind if you want to. Being sovereign doesn't mean you never change your mind. It means you get to do whatever you want, including changing your mind. Um, James in chapter five, the New Testament, he's talking about prayers of the sick. And he says that a prayer of faith will save someone who's sick. The Lord will raise them up. His sins will be forgiven if we confess and pray for one another. Why? Because the prayer of a righteous person has much power as it is working, according to the ESV. Um. Verse 22, this is David talking again, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go down to him, but he will not return to me. So David fully anticipates being reunited with his child in death. Uh, This is not a question. uh, He doesn't question the fate of someone who died too young um, to make a profession of faith or, you know, he's, he's not worried that the child may not have had the chance to go through that ritual of circumcision. The David is he accepts it as fact the the way he says it, and again notice there's there's the way he says it, it there's no double speak there's no political aspiration there there's none of the stuff we've seen from David before this is David he's just he's tired he's exhausted he hasn't had anything to eat and the facts are my kid died and I hope to be with him again. This is a totally different David than what we've seen before. Now, remember I said he flipped those protocols on his head. He's not praying for the dead. There's no offerings on the child's behalf. He's, um, he's not trying to persuade, the, persuade God to, to offer some kind of blessing or intervention on behalf of the dead child. I, David is actually making a theological statement with doing this. So I'm going to read what Samura says. It should be noted that this attitude toward death of his beloved is completely the opposite of the Canaanite cult of the dead. While in the latter family members intercede and appeal to their deities to save the soul of the dead, David, while this child was alive, sought God's mercy for his recovery. But after his death, he entrusted the fate of the dead child completely to the hands of the sovereign and merciful God. And so the fact that David refuses to to mourn once death has become a fact is a theological statement. Mm-hmm. And so compare that back with Saul to the witch of Endor. He's calling to the dead for help. David's calling mm-hmm. for the living God to help those who are alive. And he trusts God with the dead. And so. Yeah. And it, and it kind of blows the uh, idea that you, I don't know. <laughs> it, 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 kind of blows the idea out of the water that a lot of uh, people have that you have to um that, that the children who are not um who never make a profession of faith yes all go to hell yeah. i mean unless we're assuming that david's in hell which i don't think that's the case yeah yeah and, well and you know i actually the first time i encountered this verse was in the context of a miscarriage uh there was a young mom who was um struggling with the, you know, the fact that her, her unborn child had died. 
and what was their fate. And uh, I think uh, most people read this verse as confirmation that, that the unborn or the, the, the uh, infants who do die are with God and they're under his care. Um, however, there's a few whacked out pseudo theologians who will deny that we should ever assume that any children could be, you know, automatically saved and taken to God. Um, because how do we know if we're there among the elect? How do we know if they're the ones God chose to save? Uh, we all have original sin. Um, matter of fact, I, I read one article who went so far as to claim that any child who dies in the womb is automatically sent to hell because they never had a chance to be regenerated. And I, you know, this is the kind of things that they're being said to grieving moms, uh, women who have lost children. And, um, you know, and I understand why he wrote it. He was using this as part of his, his rationale to aggressively go after those who commit and perform abortions, who've had abortions. Uh, look, mm -hmm. I, I'm totally against abortion. I get that. I'm, and I don't even want to talk about it as far as uh, any kind of caveats or whatever. Because um, that's a whole other conversation. Uh, I think that protecting the, all children should be the work of any of us who believe. But that kind of language, I don't care how much good you're trying to justify doing with it, hurts women who lost a child through no fault of their own. And it is appropriate that we do apply this passage back to a miscarriage because under Torah, any child that didn't live to 30 days was given the same status as a miscarriage. And so because you got to remember, infant mortality rates were high at this point in time. And so uh, I, I, I've got some stuff I really want to say on that, but it gets really involved. So I think I probably need to wait until we go into the next episode because. I want to talk about how the Bible proves that a child, specifically a child under 30 days, but I think it applies further than that. And we'll talk about why on that episode, but specifically why a child who dies under 30 days of age belongs to the Lord. And so the death okay. of a child isn't, it's returning that child to God. It is how the Torah uh, presents it. That's how the rabbis presents it. That, that's how everyone who studied the Old Testament and didn't get caught up in this debate of the elect, the non-elect, the regenerated, the unregenerated. The serious Bible scholars have seen it that way for ages. And anytime we try to impose more on that and, and act like um, children don't belong to God, we're missing the point. So right. um, I want to be very clear before we, you know, because this, this is a horrible topic. I mean, let's just be honest. So I want to be very clear to any woman who, who might be listening, who has experienced a miscarriage, not alone. Um, I've been there. I, I've got so many friends who've been there. So it, it's, it's a hard topic. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we want to be sensitive to that fact. So if this story can't get any bleaker, you know, but it does. That's the sad part. It does. We're in Samuel. Right. It, it just gets awful. So anyway. So, you know, everyone has something to look forward to for next week. Um, so that being said, let's uh, let's pause there and we will come back to this next week. Um, if you want to be part of this conversation, because why wouldn't you? Um, so uplifting. Hit us up. Raven Creek SC on the social media, ravencreeksc.com. Uh, be part of the conversation, and we'll be looking forward to, to seeing you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith 
Other Oddities Podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.